Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. In this episode, Lama Tom Broadwater reviews the fourth chapter of Shantideva's book, The Way of the Bodhisattva. In it, Shantideva writes about carefulness as it relates to our maintaining bodhicitta, the mind and heart of awakening as expressed in our vow to awaken for the benefit of all beings. Shantideva emphasizes the need never to abandon our aspiration and the negative consequences of doing so once the vow has been taken. Enjoy the podcast. So, uh, I'm celebrating my second week of liberation. Uh, I, uh, I was uh, uh, in a plane coming back from India, 35,000 feet over the Atlantic Ocean. I was in the airplane toilet. I was washing my hands vigorously. I hit my phone, which was in my pocket, and it went down the, uh, the, uh, the plane's toilet. It has a great sound. I didn't associate it with it going. So I come back to my seat, and I'm looking for my phone. I had the stewardess go around to everybody and everyone. You had like 200 people standing up looking under the seat. Um, and then all of a sudden, I associated the sound with what actually happened. So I'm free of my, my iPhone. It's actually sort of nice. Because now I sort of can go around and observe people always down like this. We are sort of tied to that, aren't we? So I know I have to get one soon because people do want to sometimes talk to me and I sometimes want to talk to them. So I'm going to have to get my phone. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, is this the first time for anybody here? A couple folks? Good. Welcome. Are you from Miss Kingham College? Oh, very good. There's Melissa, who's also from Kingham College. And, and we're all here, so I had the privilege and pleasure of last week uh, talking to Melissa's class. I consider, you know, I have a low uh, threshold for what I consider success, and the fact that no one fell asleep as they did in one other class I had, and fell into the aisle <laughs> when I gave a talk. That actually happened. I think the, the fella, it was like maybe they had a rough night the night before and <laughs> maybe had come in to sleep it off or something. I don't know. <laughs> I hope I can do better today. So um, what we're talking about is uh, this book called The Way of the Bodhisattva. And what my plan today is basically to give a little... We're on chapter four. I'll give a little review of what that's all about. Then we'll read chapter four. Then I'll give a brief commentary, hopefully no more than 10 minutes, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So if anybody has questions about it, uh, I want you to save them to the end, but I do. we do like questions. I got a little uh, thing for you to decide with sort of a vote kind of a deal here. There's two ways we can read this. One way is we can all read it together, or if you prefer, you can uh, simply read, uh, you know, silently read along as I read it. What, and so what do you think would make it more meaningful, meaningful for you, me reading it or your reading it with me? Uh, let's have a show of hands. Who wants, uh, who wants to read it with me? Okay. Who wants me to read it? Okay. <laughs> I'll do it. It, lo it looks like the, uh, you want me to read it. So with my uh, reading disability, I will, I will do my best. How's that? So anyway, let's, let's get to the book. Thank you. I do. There they are. That will help. 
So um, one of the ways we begin is uh, we take refuge. Someone asked me this morning, why do we always say refuge? Um, part of the reason is we forget what we take refuge in. So often what we're taking refuge in is like iPhones and like all the, you know, new car, new job, all that kind of stuff we take refuge in. So we say we're, what our true refuge is for Buddhists is the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So we keep, we say that over and over so that we remind ourselves of what our true refuges are. If you don't, um, if you don't know the refuge prayer or it's not a part of your tradition, no problem. Uh, just quietly dedicate the merit of uh, of what you're doing to um, to your for your benefit and for the benefit of all beings, that's fine. But uh, if you want to, you can join in, uh, and we'll chant it in uh, Tibetan. Sanje chudong soki chok nam la, chanchu badu dagni kapsu chi. Dagi jin so ji pe so nam ki dro la pinchir sanje dru par sho sanje chudang saki chok nam la jan chu vadu dagni kyap Dagi jen so ji pe so nam ki dro la pin chir san je dru par sho san je chidang saki chot nam la jan chu badu dagni kyap su chi Dagi jin so ji pe so nam ki dro la pin shir san dru pa sho Okay, so I'm going to spend about five minutes uh, summarizing the first three chapters. So the general process, I guess you might say, of people coming to the center is they come curious and they uh, find some affinity for uh, what goes on here. And uh, they start listening, contemplating, and meditating on teachings that are done here. And then at some point they decide they want to take refuge in the Buddha. And they do. And then as their practice deepens, uh, basically the student is, is nudged along a path of love and compassion using various Buddhist techniques. That's really central. And then at some point, if you are so inspired, by your love and your compassion, you take a vow. And that vow is the vow, vow of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is basically a, a saint. Uh, we're not saints yet. We're, we're vowing to become like that. A, a, he is a hero or she is a hero based upon Mahayana scripture. And the most important thing that a bodhisattva does, bodhi means uh, enlightened, sattva is a person or hero, so he is a person striving for enlightenment. The most important thing that a bodhisattva does is vow, make one vow. And that vow is that they will awaken, and they'll awaken not just for themselves, but for all beings, pretty vast kind of a vow, pretty big. And uh, so this whole book, this whole book is about this vow. How do we, how do we 
get it? How do we, how do we attain uh, bodhicitta? Bodhicitta means uh, a heart and mind of awakening. How do we get bodhicitta, which is uh, a characteristic of a bodhisattva? How do we get it? Then once we get it, how do we maintain it? And the final part of the book is, and then once we've gained it, maintained it, how do we intensify it? So today, what Shanti Deva is saying is that we maintain it through being careful. By the way, uh, Shanti Deva, as I said, was an 8th century Buddhist saint. And this book is speaking a lot to his audience, which were monks. But the advice and the direction he gives to his monks is just as vital to us as to them. There's some parts, well, we say, well, that's, that doesn't apply to me right now because I'm not a monk. But so much of it does. And basically he's saying, if you want to be a bodhisattva, if you want to awaken for the benefit of all beings, the most important characteristic in maintaining that vow is to be careful. To be careful. And he'll explain what that means as we go along. So let's, let's look at it, what he says. This is how we maintain this vow that I'm going to, I'm going to awaken, I'm going to benefit all beings. So I, I, will, I will do my best to give a dramatic reading of this. <laughs> at least that you can follow along. <clears throat> the children of the conqueror, who thus have firmly grasped this bodhicitta, this heart of enlightenment, should never turn aside from it, strive never to transgress its disciplines. Whatever was begun without due heed, and all that was not properly conceived, although a promise and a pledge were given, is it right to reconsider? Shall I act or not? Yet what the Buddhas and their heirs have scrutinized in their great wisdom, I myself have probed and scrutinized. Why should I now procrastinate? For if I bind myself with promises, but fail to carry out all my words indeed then every being will have been betrayed. What destiny will lie in store for me? If in the teachings it is said that those who in their thoughts intend to give a small and paltry thing, but then draw back, will take rebirth as hungry spirits, how can I expect a happy destiny if I from my heart summon wandering beings to the highest bliss, but then deceive and fail them. As for those who, losing bodhicitta, lead others nonetheless to liberation, karmic law is inconceivable and only understood by the omniscient. This failure for the bodhisattva is the gravest of all downfalls. For should it ever come to pass, the good of every being is thrown down. And anyone who for a single instant halts the merit of a bodhisattva wanders endlessly in evil states because the welfare of all beings is reduced. Destroy a single being's joy and you will work the ruin of yourself no need to speak of bringing low the joy of beings infinite as space itself. And those who circle in samsara, mixing powerful downfalls with the power of bodhicitta back and forth, will long be hindered from the bodhisattva grounds. And so, according to my promise, I will act attentively. And from this day forth, if I now fail to strive, I'll fall from low to even lower states, striving for the benefit of all that lives. 
striving for the benefit of all that lives. Unnumbered Buddhas have already lived and passed away, but I, by virtue of my sins, have failed to come within the compass of their healing works. And thus will always be my lot if I continue to behave like this. And I will suffer pains and bondage, wounds and laceration in the lower realms. The appearance of the Buddha in the world, true faith, the attainment of a human form, the aptitude for good, all these are rare. When will they come to me again? Indeed, today I'm hale and well. I have enough to eat and I am not in danger. But this life is fleeting, unreliable. My body is like something briefly lent. And yet the way I act is such that I shall not regain a human life. And losing this, my precious human form, my evils will be many, virtues none. Here is how, here is now my chance for wholesome deeds. But if I fail to practice virtue, what will be my lot? What shall I do? Bewildered by the sorrows of the lower realms, never there performing any virtue, only ever plying up my sins. And for a hundred million ages, I'll not even hear of happy destinies. This is why Lord Buddha has declared that like a turtle that perchance can place its head within the yoke adrift upon the mighty sea, this human birth is difficult to find. If through the evil action of a single instance, I must spend an eon in the hell of unremitting pain, the evils in samsara stored from time without beginning, no need to say that they will keep me from the states of bliss. And the mere experience of such pain does not result in being freed from it. For in the very suffering of such states, more evil will occur and then in great abundance. Thus, having found this moment of reprieve, if I now fail to train myself in virtue, what greater folly could there ever be? How more could I betray myself? If, having understood all this, I stupidly despondent still, then at the moment of my death, my sorrows will be black indeed. And then my body burns so long in fires of hell so unendurable, my mind, there is no doubt, will also be tormented, burned in fires of unendurable regret. You thought this only happened in Pentecostal circles. <laughs> we got it. He's trying to hit us up the side of the head. As it is, if by chance that I have gained a state so hard to find, wherein to help myself, if now, while having such discernment, I am once again consigned to hell, I am as if benumbed by sorcery, as if reduced to total mindlessness. I do not know what dulls my wits. Oh, what is it that has me in its grip? Anger. Lust, these enemies of mind, are limbless, devoid of faculties. They have no bravery, no cleverness. How then have they reduced me to such slavery? They dwell within my mind and at their pleasure injure me. All this I suffer meekly, unresenting, thus my abject patience all displaced. All, if all the gods and demigods besides together came against me as my foes, they would be powerless to throw me down in fires of hell of unrelenting 
pain. And yet, the mighty fiend of my afflictions flings me in an instant headlong down to where the mighty Lord of mountains would be burned, its ashes all consumed. O oh, my enemy, afflictive passion, endless and beginningless companion, no other enemy indeed is able to endure so long. All other foes that I appease and wait upon will show me favors, give me every aid. But should I serve my dark, defiled emotions, they will only harm me and draw me down to grief. If thus my ancient and unceasing foes, the wellspring only of my growing pain, can lodge so safe within my heart, how can I live so blithe and fearless in this wheel of life? And if the jail guards of the prisons of samsara, the butcherers and tormentors of infernal realms all lurk within me in the web of craving. What joy can ever be my destiny? I will not leave the fight until before my eyes these enemies of mine are all destroyed. For if, for if aroused to fury by the merest slight, incapable of sleep until the scores are settled, proud but wretched rivals destined all to suffer when they die will draw the battle lines and do their best to win, the careless, the careless of the, and careless of the pain of cut and thrust will stand their ground refusing to give way. No need to say that I will not lose heart regardless of the hardships of the fray. From this day forth I strive to crush these foes whose very nature is to bring me pain. The wounds inflicted by the enemy in futile wars are flaunted by the soldier as a prize. So in the high endeavor for so great a thing, why should I be dismayed by hurt or injury. When fishers and butchers, farmers and the like, intending just to gain their livelihood, will suffer all the miseries of heat and cold, why, for being's happiness, should those like me not bear the same? When I pledge myself to free, when I pledge myself to free from their afflictions, beings who abide in every region, stretching to the limits of the sky, I was myself not free from defilements. To speak like that, not knowing my capacity, were these not truly but a madman's words? More reason then for never drawing back, abandoning the fight against defiled affliction. This shall be my all-consuming passion. Filled with rancor, I will wage my war. Defilement of this kind will halt defilement. And, from, and for this reason, it shall not be spurned. Better if I perish in the fire, better that my head be severed from my body, than ever I should serve or reverence my mortal enemies' defiled emotions. Common foes, when driven, when driven from the state, from the country, when they're driven from the country, retreat and base themselves in other lands and muster all their strength, the better to return. But enemy afflictions are without such stratagems. Miserable defilements scattered by the eye of wisdom. There will you, where will you run when driven from my mind? Whence would you return to do me harm? But oh, my mind is feeble and I'm indolent. Defilements are not in the object. 
They're not within the faculties, and they're not somewhere in between. And if not elsewhere, where is their abode? Whence they inflict their havoc on the world. They are simple mirages, so take heart. Banish all your fear and strive to know their nature. Why suffer needlessly the pains of hell? This is how I should reflect and labor, that I might apply the precepts thus set forth. What invalids in need of medicine ignore the doctor's words and gained their health. That was hard. <laughs> um, Shanti Davis saying, be careful. You know, when you were first learning to walk across the street, and your parent or your guardian or whoever was directing you said, be careful. Don't go too fast. Don't dawdle. Watch what you're doing. And sort of slapped you off the side of the head, maybe, if you, if you disobeyed that. Shani Davis sort of doing the same thing. He said, you're on this path, this bodhisattva path. Be aware where you're at. Be aware that you've made a promise to every single being, both past, present, and future. And, and that promise is you're going to awaken. It's a pretty big, tall order, right? The beauty of this vast vow is that our teachers tell us that it's so easy. The, the bad part of it, actually, our teachers tell us it's so easy, so easy to violate. But they also tell us it's so easy to fix because all we have to do is make the vow again. And that's why every time we meet together, we say the refuge and bodhicitta vow. Because we break it all the time. No problem. OK. So I'm going to give a brief commentary on this. And these are not my words. Anything brilliant that's said here is from this. <laughs> And any mistakes are mine. So, so he's basically saying, I've made this vow. Consider the consequences of giving up this vow. You have vowed, those who've taken this vow, have vowed that they will help beings. And what happens if you give up on that? You give up on opportunities to help people. Now, I'm not talking about these high, you know, you know, sometimes we get sort of carried off, we're going to save the world in a minute, but that's not the case. What I'm talking about is smiling at the Kroger checkout clerk. Smiling. That's benefiting her. And if you give up this vow to be a benefit to others, you're giving up the opportunity to help that checkout person have a little bit better of a day. You're giving up every opportunity from here until your death to be helpful to other beings. That's why you made the vow, because you wanted to. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect. We're not that way. So in our conflicted, sometimes not completely pure ways, we're still going to try to be helpful even though we aren't awakened yet because we know the path to that awakening is smiling at that checkout lady as we're, or woman or man or whoever it is as we go through the line. We miss that opportunity. And that's why it's really sad. And that's why he said that at death, and we hate to think about death, but it's like around the corner. It is for me. I'm 70. Uh, and I always, I, when I ever the time I say that, I knew I was going to hit 70. I just didn't know it was going to be so soon. 
this is a this is a ten year old mind and a seventy year old body. So I promised to all beings that I'm going to awaken. Wake up. There's one little line there, and I think it's, it might be helpful. For, well, no, I won't go into that. I'll pass over that. It's a minor point. I'll go to uh, verse 8. It really is. If we make this promise and we give it up, and what does giving it up mean? It means they're not worth it. Or it might mean, I don't think I'm worthy of it, that I can't do it. That's giving up. And so you can't give up. And if you do, you make the vow again. <laughs> then in verse 9 it says, don't if, even if you can't be helpful to other beings and you don't think you can, at least don't impede, obstruct those that are doing good in this world. At least that you can do. The reason we don't do that is because sometimes when we see something that somebody's doing that's really good, we're sort of jealous of it, right? We think, well, or we see their faults as opposed to the good they're trying to do. Or we're just jealous. And we, and we sort of create this, this narrative in our mind, well, they really aren't that good. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I've done it. The other in line, or in verse 11, he's saying, it's no big deal, it's sort of like logical. Sometimes we have this really powerful desire, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to take care of this matter. And we feel this exuberance on a day, on a moment, because of some inspiration. And then the next day, uh, we do something that's, contradictory to that. So it's this back and forth kind of thing that always is a problem. What really is a problem is on the day after the day of exuberance when we do something bad, we then say, oh, the heck with it all. Oh, yeah, I had this beautiful idea yesterday, but today. So maybe what Shadi Dave is saying is when we're inspired, when we feel really like we want to be helpful to other beings and we feel like we can do it, Rather than think of the big idea one to save the world, maybe the next step we need to take is to look at one of our particular uh, defects and work on it a little bit. Use the energy that we have to do something small that's helpful as opposed to thinking down the road, I'm going to save the world. That's what he's saying there, I think. So again, on line, or in verse 12, he's saying, be attentive, careful, mindful, and aware. And he's saying, we haven't awakened yet. And we haven't awakened yet because of our afflictive emotions. And if we continue as we are doing, we will always be. What's, what's the saying? If I always do what I always did, I always get what I always got. Something like that. Something like that. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So, so it, we're here. We're unenlightened. It's probably because we've always done what we've always done. And Chandi Davis saying, maybe try something different. And what he's saying, uh, try something different, is virtue and being a little less selfish. He's also, and this is really important. We really have to recognize how precious our lives are. He's saying, the fact that you came here, that's faith. I mean, you came here thinking, well, maybe something can be said or I can do something that's going to help me. That takes a little faith. So you have faith. You have a human form. <laughs> 
you want to do good. I, I think everybody in this room has that desire. Nobody wants to create chaos and evil in the world, so that's good. And what he's saying is, all oh, that's very rare. And we'll go on, we'll skip over to uh, line 20. How rare is it? He's saying it's like a turtle. We have this turtle. It's blind in dish. It's blind. And it's on, the, let's put it on the uh, Florida coast. And we put this inner tube out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and we tell the turtle, now go out there and find that inner tube. And not only find it, but put your head up through the middle of it. The chances of that turtle doing that is about as great as our having attained what we've attained thus far, all these things. So I don't know if you can follow the analogy, but it, 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 it points to the preciousness of our lives. You ever get up in the morning and say, oh my god, I'm alive? Does it ever strike you like that? Once, just once in a great while you say, oh my gosh. I'm really alive. There's something about that, uh, inexpressible. And that's what he's pointing to there. I want to go to another line, line tw uh, uh, verse 22. It says, And the mere experience of pain does not result in being freed from it. For in the very suffering of such states, more evil will occur, and then in great abundance. And I had this flash of idea when I was driving here. I have this horrible habit. I, I lose my keys all the time. It's, it's because of my karmic mindlessness. I, I developed this habit over time. Now, if I were smart, dharmically smart, what I would do when I lose my keys, I would say, ah, this is the result of my mindlessness. The next time, I'm going to make sure I put them in the right places, right? No, no. What I do when I lose my keys, I throw, I tear the blankets off. This is literally how. Tear the blankets off the, off the bed, throw stuff up in the air. My, my wife, who witnesses this periodically and more frequently as I grow older, she just laughs. What's the point? The point I'm saying is that when we, when we experience anything, that is karmic. We say, well, it's, it's over with. I can forget about it now. That's not what usually happens. In the state of being mindless and, and experiencing something bad, I create even more bad <laughs> by throwing stuff. Does that mean, do you understand what I'm saying there? This is what Shawnee Day was saying. So don't think that just because it's uh, arose, it will never happen again. That's true, but our response is critical, and our response is frequently to get crazy, <laughs> as I do. So it's really pointing to the fact that since life is precious, this is the time right now to work on things. Throughout this, he talks about lower realms. And I understand some people's difficulty with that. But he's really talking about not a place so much as a state of mind. That's important. So you can think of it this way. When I, when I create non-virtue, when I'm angry, I literally am putting myself in a state of hell. When I am being greedy, or lacking in generosity, I am literally putting myself in a place that is starving. That is, they call it in traditional Tibetan Buddhism, the state of the hungry ghost. The hungry ghost is someone who's got this great big belly, but has this tiny, narrow little neck, and so he can't swallow anything. And that sort of is a good analogy to what it's like to be greedy. We want everything. We want to take everything. And we wind up having nothing. What time is it? We're up. Okay, got to finish up. <laughs> so he's saying that the, the uh, 
Afflictive emotions, our afflictive emotions are what keeps us from being beneficial to other beings. And he says finally that there's hope here. He's saying unlike enemies in the world that they go off and they, they strategize and come back to get us. If we can conquer our afflictive emotions, they will never come back again. And he said, ultimately, what we need is to have the eye of wisdom. We're working on that. <laughs> the eye of wisdom is to be able to see all things as being empty of any inherent nature. Where is our emotions? They're not in the object. They're not in our faculties, and they're not any place in between. They are mirages. Now, you and me aren't that wise yet. I had this, when I was in India, Karmapa, gave the, who's uh, head of our lineage, gave this wonderful talk. And he said, you know, it's really good that you, that you work on uh, your realization about emptiness. But when we have bad habits or we see in ourselves things that need to be corrected. He said, yes, you can use the eye of wisdom. Look at it's inherently, uh, that it doesn't have any inherent existence. But he said, for most of us, and he included himself, he said, just stop it. <laughs> just stop it. Don't do it. But, you know, we work on wisdom as we go along. So again, to summarize real quickly, this vow to awaken and to awaken for all beings is the most beautiful vow you could possibly imagine. He says in another part, it's sort of like lightning striking in the middle of the night. It's intense and it's beautiful. But it it will vanish if we don't work on it. And he's saying we do that by being careful, just like your mom or your grandma or your caregiver said, be careful. You're walking across. You're walking from this life to whatever is in the next life. And you can get run over <laughs> if you're not careful. Or you could stray. So be careful. OK. We're done. <laughs> uh, anybody have any thoughts, questions, or reflections, or anything on your mind? And what time is it? 16? Oh, good. We got some time. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to see you and also to listen to you. I thank you for your example in regards to car keys <laughs> because I have that similar experience. And I just wanted to say that now I have to think about being consistent. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and make sure that I place it yeah. on an everyday <laughs> basis so I can find it. But it's, <laughs> now it's a reminder as far as, okay, this is the way, and it is the way of the bodhicitta. So yeah. I need to think about that yeah. when I see my keys and go, ah, yeah. It's called being mindful, isn't it? Yes. And what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is nothing other than, and you have it. Everybody has it. We just don't use it. It is the quality of the, of the mind that, that uh, allows the continuity of our awareness. You're aware that all the time, when you don't put your keys in the same spot, you lose them. But we forget that. And mindfulness allows us the continuity of that awareness. So, I mean, that's a mundane example, but, you know, take the yeah, pick on whatever. It's a matter of reducing anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Good point.
Good morning. Good morning. I guess my um, comment is sort of similar, but when I first, uh, when you, those were passed out and I saw the title of carefulness, yeah. I immediately thought of, well, that's a practice of being in the present moment. That should. That's the practice of being in the present moment. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, not, we're not lingering in the past or yeah. anxiety about the future. We are you. in the moment because we are being careful about what we are doing. So yeah. it's kind of a, a practice of being in the, for being in yes, the moment. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a, that's a good observation, an excellent observation. Um, and, you know, we are so distracted by stuff. And we allow ourselves to be overwhelmed in the moment. But instead, like I said, when I lose my keys, instead of being mindful, okay, blah, 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 I become overwhelmed with the anger. <laughs> and, you know, I learn nothing. <laughs> and it's only through being mindful. And, as you say, put the things at the same place. I mean, this is very mundane, but it's like, you know, it's what we come up against every day. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Sue is uh, from uh, Athens. Temporarily here. She's, here, she's adopted <laughs> this home up here. I have. She's, she's becoming a chaplain. Oh. One of these days. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, just reading this chapter, and I, you know, I have read it before, yeah. but the difficulty I have when I read this or I hear it from you is, is uh, how do you not fall into despair? Because, you know, I've oh. done all these things. You know, I've, I've made mistakes. I've hurt oh. people. Oh. How, you know, and then, yeah. then you just, it, it just, I know that's probably just yeah. an ecclesia. Yeah, it's, it's with any, yeah. yeah. With, if it's with any kind of, like, huge goal. Yeah. It's like, you need it as a direction. But it's a step-by-step -step process. And the most important part of that process is recognizing, they call it confession, I just call it recognizing where you are right now. You're not there, so you just take little bitty steps. And in the Buddhist perspective, I mean, it's nice to think we would reach enlightenment in one lifetime. But it's likely, for me anyway, it's going to be a couple of lifetimes. So I think it's like recognizing that you have this incredibly beautiful goal. Looking at yourself right now and taking little baby steps in that direction. And not, and not, so having a, a huge goal could otherwise lead you to despair. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll tell you another quick story. I was in Bogaya and uh, Annie Lodro Lama, you know, uh, it's such an inspiring place. And what you do is you do circumambulations around the tree where the Buddha was enlightened. And, and it's very inspiring. And they say that when you circumambulate that tree, it's as if the Buddha was there hearing your aspiration. And so uh, Annie Lodro, who's a nun uh, from our home monastery, was in front of me. And we were going around. And I, I said, Annie Lodro, just out of curiosity, what's, what was your aspiration? She said, I was praying that in the next lifetime I don't become a hog or a pig or a snake or something really low. So her aspiration wasn't that great. But that was, but you get my point? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, so in the one hand, we do have these great aspirations. But at the same time, we have to look at where we're at right now. Honestly. Yeah. I think that's the hard part. <laughs> Honestly, to look at ourselves, yeah. yes, it is. I, I know, yeah. But there is nothing more liberating than recognizing where you're at. Because then you don't have to pretend. <laughs> you, you have all these pretensions. And you just put all that crap aside and say, I am where I am right now, so now I'm going to take the steps I need to take, rather than this highfalutin, I'm going to save the world. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Glad you're back and appreciate all the comments. Um, what kept coming to my mind was a phrase I loved so much that uh, was Mother Teresa's mantra when she received the uh, 
the Nobel Peace Prize, and she went up and she simply said, none of us can do great things. Well, when mm -hmm. I say that to myself, it really helps get me down to yeah. right size, just yeah. being humble, and that I shouldn't even be taking on the idea so much of, oh, I'll go out and I'll do all this great, blah, 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 yeah. blah. So we can do, none of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Absolutely. And if I can focus on trying to build the, the, the energy within my loving and caring for myself and the rest of the world or other sentient beings, yeah. and not up in my mind yes. of, oh, and I'm such a great guy, yeah. then I probably yeah. can keep persevering yeah. and keep it right size yeah. and, um, and stay in reality yeah. rather than my yeah. ego. I don't know if this exactly applies to what you're saying, but I've told this story before and I, I, I love to tell it. Um, I do volunteer work in a hospital, and part of my job is just to go in and to help people feel better. I, with, I don't have an agenda so much, just go in. And inevitably, I get nervous. And uh, all of a sudden, I recognize that, that uptightness, and I recognize that's me getting in the way of myself. And so my mantra when I am trying to be helpful to other people is, Tom, get out of the way yourself. <laughs> just, instead of thinking that I, I am doing something for you, I'm just doing something with the motivation of, of being helpful. Thank you. That's, I love Mother Teresa's statement. It's really cool. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Lama Tom. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, reading through that chapter again, it always stuns me how carefulness can be so dark um, and challenging. Yeah. I think this, you know, honest self-reflection is important. But what I don't hear there and what I would love to hear your comment on is forgiveness. Because when I'm doing honest self-reflection and I take out the scourge or the whip, it sort of, uh, it actually sets me back. And if yes. I succeed, yes. I actually have a little ego about my success then. Yes. And... As a strategy, yeah. obviously, an un, yeah. for an un, unenlightened being like yeah. me, there's some skill, skillful means about really um, cultivating a heart of forgiveness for yes. myself and for yes. others. Yeah. And it's not in there. I couldn't find it, at least. I found, you know, the part where, well, these things don't have arms or legs and can't really attack right. us, we just react to our right. situations badly and create yeah. all these problems. But we, we that's our habit for all kinds of reasons. We don't need the narrative, but don't you think forgiveness would be a powerful thing to add to the recipe here? Well, I'm not going to uh, second guess Shadi David, the eight See, you're so humble. I will. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Hang in there. Hang in there. I, I can't. I think the dark part that you're... First of all, what is the Buddhist path? It is working on our minds. Yeah. The good news is our basic nature is Buddha nature. It is good. That's the first thing. Yes. The second part is there are what I'm going to use a fancy term that Buddhists like to use jargon. There are adventitious defilements. There are things not inherently a part of that good nature. Those are these defilements, these these greed, anger. And to tell you the truth, I think greed, anger lust in the way that it's sometimes portrayed is dark. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 
It hurts. Look at what our anger has done across the world. There's no, so that's reality. He does say, though, that they have no inherent nature, as you right. said. The other part that we should add is that this is such a vast, huge vow. We can't possibly, uh, in the short term, fulfill it. So we have to have humility. Maybe that's where some of this sort of comes in. We have to be humble that I'm not there yet. So it's not so much forgiveness as just recognizing where we're at at the moment and, and not make a big story about it. Yeah. You know, I can tell a big story about why I am where I am because of all this, that, and the other. So drop the storyline to say this is where I'm at. There is a special practice that I know you know about and a lot of folks know about called uh, Tong Lin, which is um, you recognize that other people are suffering, you take on their suffering and give out your kindness. And what did, what's the first rule of Tong Lin? Start with yourself. Start with yourself. Yeah. So look at yourself. You suffer. Yeah. Have compassion about that because you would be otherwise if you could you're just the way you are now but you still have this capacity to love and you share that and then you go from yourself to the people you love to the people you're indifferent to to the people you actually find as enemies yes yeah I, I think that hits the nail on the head okay but? No offense to Shanti Dave. I just wish you would have included one stanza okay. in that well, job. We might all. find it someplace else. It's probably in there. Keep, keep looking. <laughs> so uh, that'll be in the question. So what we do uh, as Buddhists, we we you know practice is about is about giving up this. By the way, one other thing, Eric. I want to say another thing. You know, some of this is, sounds a little exaggerated. But our habit of clinging to ourselves is so strong. We're sort of, uh, and it's used by others, this analogy is we're sort of wrapped pretty tight. Uh, And so Shanti Deva is unwrapping the paper. Well, what happens to it when you unwrap it? It pulls back up. So not only is he unwrapping it, he's turning it the opposite way. So So he may be using, in a sense, a certain amount of exaggeration to get us to wake up. So it's that way too. So it's like that also. So uh, what we do is uh, in Buddhist practice is that when we do something good, uh, and the fact that you came here not to listen to me, but because you had this motivation to want to learn something about Dharma and something about how to live your life, that's a good thing. Uh, And you did it. And sort of a nice day today, you could have done a lot of other things. And you didn't. You came here. And rather than go home with that sort of pride that I did something good, <laughs> you, you imagine in your mind that whatever good you've done, you offer it up to all beings so that they no longer suffer. That's what we do. So let's make that offering. Let's, whatever good that has been accomplished by my being here, may it be for the benefit of all beings. And today, given the special occasion of the last day or so, let's offer our the good things that we have done for all those who have suffered as a result of violence, uh, whether it be whatever we, you know, there's all kinds of instruments we have used to hurt other people. Assault weapons, mouse traps, atomic bombs, all those things we have done and we have harmed other beings. We offer our good deeds of today for them and for the rest of our lives. 
may one day, may one day, the word violence, harm, mousetraps, atomic bombs, may those words not be heard of. And may we all one day, as a result of our effort, come to full awakening. And may that be for the benefit of all beings. So let's just sit for a moment, quietly relax. So my wish for you this week is that you do the good that you can do rather than the good that you think you should do. Just smile at the next <laughs> Kroger uh, checkout person or whatever comes in your path. May you do that today and the rest of the week. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. For more information about the Columbus Karma Taksim Choling, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music on this podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.